afternoon and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. As usual, I am your host, William Hill, and I haven't done this in a while, it seems, so perhaps, well, for those who listen all the time, maybe you've been wondering if we've disappeared off the planet. I can assure you we have not. Um, Just circumstances and summer and whatever the case may be. But we're back anyway, hopefully on a week-to-week basis, Lord willing to do this podcast for you. Today we're going to be talking with um, Dr. Ian Hamilton. He is a pastor over in the UK, and we're going to be talking to him about a book that he has written. It's recently released, give or take a few months, um, a book entitled The Faith-Shaped Life, but more about that in just a minute. Let me bring everybody up to speed on to the happenings at Greenville Seminary. Probably the biggest um, news that has come out of the seminary, at least on the technology side of things, um, is that we have finally, uh, and I do underscore that word, finally, <laughs> uh, released a brand new website at gpts.edu. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, it's such an improvement over what we had before. Um, it's a wonderful user interactive website. Um, that is just clean and, and just uh, wonderful to see the appearance. And a lot of effort and time has got into it by a, a few people. And I'm not going to mention their names because I'll miss somebody. I always do. But um, anyway, that's probably the newest, greatest thing that's come out of the seminary as far as technology is concerned <laughs> um, in recent days. So if you haven't seen the new website, I would encourage you to go to GPTS. Dot edu and take a look. While you're there, if you have any questions about the seminary, if you have any uh, want more information, uh, uh, peruse the website. Uh, most of the information that you will need about the seminary is there <coughs> on the website for you to see. In addition to that, I am currently trying to find time uh, to redesign the confessingourhope.com website. I've realized that it's pretty simple and plain, and I'd like to dress it up a little bit more and make it look a little more helpful. Uh, for the listeners. So I'm working on that, but don't look for that anytime soon. It's just something that I've kind of got simmering on the back burner, as it were. And of course, if you are interested in um, in listening to this podcast on the go, as well as our chapel sermons and various other special lectures, don't forget about the GPTS mobile app that you can put on your Android device and that other device. I think they released a new one recently. I don't know. I don't keep up with that kind of stuff. Right. I think the iPhone 6 came out, but be, be that as it may, you can get it on that too. Um, you can get the app on that. It's fine, um, but take advantage of that opportunity as well. As I indicated, we're going to be talking with uh, Dr. Ian Hamilton. He is the pastor of, I'm sorry, he is the pastor of Cambridge Presbyterian Church in England. And, and uh, as I'm sure we're going to hear at some point in this discussion, he is not from England. He is from Scotland. But anyway, we're going to be talking with him about a book that I have just finished reading. And, and I got to say right up front, it's, it was really a pleasure to read this book. Very encouraging, edifying book. The title of it is The Faith-Shaped Life. And uh, it's 43 small little chapters um, that will really encourage you, I think, if you just sit down take the time to go through it. So Pastor Hamilton, as I'm I usually refer to you as Pastor Hamilton, even though I know you're a doctor as well. But anyway, I've always known you as Pastor Hamilton. I knew you before you knew me, I think. But it's good to have you on the program Thank you very much. Uh, to talk with us about the book. The, the book, uh, how did, where did the idea come from to write this, this book and the, the material? Um, 
that it that it, it is included in it? Well, for the past 35 years, I've written a monthly pastoral letter to my congregation, uh, 20 years in Scotland and 15 years now in Cambridge. And I try to write letters that I think will be encouraging, challenging, reassuring. Subjects that focus on the joys, the disappointments, the glories, the trials of the Christian life. And I suppose about two years or so ago, I thought that perhaps the material might translate into a book. And I looked through all the various letters and decided on 43 bite-size chapters. I deliberately made the chapters very small, aware that the vast majority of Christians today are not uh, Christians who, who read much, and I thought this might be a helpful way into reading deeper, profounder literature, so interspersed throughout the brief chapters are references to Calvin and John Owen and Jim Packer and other uh, writers who have influenced my life over the years. So I've just written to my congregations and hoped that what I had written might resonate with a wider public. Mm. Well, I, I, I will say up front that I enjoyed the smaller chapters, and as I even indicated to you off air, um, I so much enjoyed the book that I bought a second copy and um, gave it to my wife. And so we're going to go through it together um, during our family worship times, because as as you said, you know, with our busy lifestyles, and, it, and it's oftentimes difficult. With the small three to five pages. You know, we can sit down in a half an hour and we can talk through the material and we can interact with it um, as a husband and wife. And and I don't know if that you had that in mind when you wrote it and did it that way, but that's what I thought of anyway as I was reading it. So I thought it would be a, a helpful thing. And I, and I did find it helpful, very devotional um, uh, approach to the material. And you know, I thought, well, I could just take one section a day for 43 days and, and really feed on it um, tremendously. Uh, as I said, I'm not really sure the best way to approach this discussion because obviously we're not going to sit here and talk about all 43 chapters. We want people to buy the book, obviously. And um, speaking of that, who published it? The Banner of Truth Trust very kindly published it. Yes, and of course you're from you're you're affiliated with the trust. I am. Yes, I I serve on the board of the trust, uh, but I took no. Um, place in the discussions that decided to print the book, I deliberately insisted that it went to outside readers. I didn't want my dear fellow trustees thinking, well, maybe we should just encourage this exiled Scot in Cambridge. So it went to a couple of outside readers who kindly said that they thought it was worthy of publication. So, But the banner published it, and for that I'm very thankful. Yes, yes and, I am, and I am, and I am too, and I know, I know others have read it that I've talked to as well, and they've very much enjoyed it. Now, I've got to ask about the title. Is that the, is the title of the book, was that your idea, or was that the publisher's idea, or maybe a little bit of both? No, it just came out of my head. <laughs> I, thought, I thought it was a title that resonated with me, 
Um, and I hoped it would resonate with a wider public. If, if I'm honest, I, I feel happiest writing things that speak to my own heart. And I reckon most people are just like me. And I know that for me, I need to be reminded constantly that, as Paul puts it in Galatians 2, that the life that I'm called to live is by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. And so I thought it would be useful in little bite-sized chunks to help people see the contour, the, the topography, if you like, of the life of faith. And that was the reasoning behind it. Yeah, yeah and, and every chapter, of course, because of the title, I think, um, it talks about or mentions in some way, I'm just looking down through the table of contents quickly, and I think I'm right. Yep. Every yep. every little section starts with either the word faith or has the word faith embedded in it. And what I liked about the way you approached this subject is that you took this this idea of faith and really you set the, I think anyway, you set the groundwork up front in that in that first couple sections about what faith is and th this kind of thing and then applied that to various areas of the Christian experience is am I close yeah I I suppose I I wanted if, if someone were to ask me what's the one thing you want people to take away from the book it would be that the glory of faith does not lie in its quality but in its object John Murray, the great um, biblical theologian, another Scot uh, who, who taught at Westminster Seminary, he used the word extraspective. It's a very Murray word. Faith is extraspective. And what he meant by that was we spend too much time worrying about and pondering the quality of our faith. Now, there's a place for that, but our great need is to see how glorious and great and gracious um, the object of our faith is. Samuel Rutherford, the uh, 17th century um, Scottish pastor theologian, wrote in one of his letters, uh, My faith hangs by a thread, but if I may say so, it is a thread of Christ's spinning. And... I've always found that for me, that was my great need constantly to be reminded that the glory of faith is not that I possess it, but that God has granted me it and that the faith that I have rests securely in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that was the great hope in writing the book, to point people away from themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, yes and I think, um, at least for me, um, I think that goal was uh, accomplished um, as I went through and and, and contemplated even the various topics and areas of life, the Christian experience that these various small sections actually deal with. And I guess for the sake of time and simplicity, the probably the best thing to do is just it, because I'm the host and I get to do these things, um, just to pick a few sample sections from the book and, and maybe have you interact a little bit okay. on air with them. Um, 
And of course, I'll probably you'll probably say something or or indicate something that'll prompt more questions for me in relationship to it. But there was a, you know a section here that I found. I guess I wouldn't have expected it to be in a book on faith or the Christian-based life, faith faith related. But in in chapter four, you um, you talk about this catholicity of faith. Now, what do you mean by the Catholicity of faith? In Mark chapter 9, uh, Mark records for us a very striking incident in the life of Jesus and his disciples. Mm. The disciples see a man casting out demons in Jesus' name, and they forbid him because they said he wasn't one of us. And Jesus then rebukes the disciples, in effect saying to them, he may not have belonged to you, but he certainly belonged to me. And by the Catholicity of faith, I simply mean that we are called to honour and respect as brothers and sisters in Christ, Christian believers who trust alone in Jesus Christ for their salvation. We may think that their views are less than we would like them to be. For myself, I'm a, a head-to-toe reformed confessional Christian. But reformed Christianity does not embrace the whole of Christianity. And where someone is trusting alone in the finished work of Christ, where the anchor of their hope is in the risen, ascended Lord who has defeated sin and death and hell. And if their hope before God rests securely and alone in Jesus Christ, incarnate, crucified, risen, ascended, glorified and returning, then it's my obligation to embrace them as my brothers and sisters. It doesn't mean that I don't seek to correct them or challenge them or receive their corrections and their challenges but to do so in a brotherly, familial spirit. I suppose John 17 is a passage that speaks powerfully to me, where the Lord Jesus prays that his disciples will be one, that the world might see that the Father has sent him. And I think in evangelical Christianity, we've underplayed the importance of the familial Catholicity of the faith. We have been infected by, at times, an individualism that um, almost, almost behaves at times as if it were a little pope. And I think one of the marks of true Christianity is that it embraces those whom the triune God has embraced. I, I have a fear of speaking ill of anyone washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, indwelled by his Spirit and elected by the Father. I don't mean I have to hesitate from correcting and calling that brother or sister to a better way. I'm a Reformed Christian. I love the Westminster Standards. Um, but it means I have to do so in a spirit that commends Christ, who embraces all his believing children. So that's what I mean by the Catholicity of faith. 
Yeah, and I, 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 I so much appreciated that chapter because I think you're right. I think there's there is a sense, um, like like you, I'm uh, obviously I attend Greenville Seminary, very committed to the Westminster Standards, and there is a sense I think, and and I was I was probably convicted at some level with the idea that you know we tend to get our we tend to get so narrow focused that we think we're we we're it, and um, and we forget that there are other bud blood-bought believers out there that maybe don't see things the way we do right now or ever will, but that's my responsibility is not to look down on them, but my responsibility is to embrace them as brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and, um, and, and with that idea that you just talked about, you know, you jump, you fast forward to chapter 18, where here again, I think you pick up on the same idea. And I'm just going to read this little section because it, I, if I had my pen in my hand when I was reading it, I would have marked it all up. But, um, you said, I have been wonderfully privileged, this is what you wrote, page 73, I've been wonderfully privileged to have been embraced by the Reformed faith. Now, I, when I read that, I, re- I actually stopped and read that again, because that's not how we typically refer to that. At least I don't. I usually refer to that as, I've embraced the Reformed faith. But here you turned it around and said, you've been embraced by the Reformed faith. I thought that was really wonderful. And then you go on to say, like many of you, I am persuaded it is the most accurate and enriching explication of the teaching of God's holy word. But precisely here lies a danger. The Reformed faith is not the Christian faith. Unless you believe that everyone who is not a Calvin, not Calvinistic Presbyterian is not a Christian at all, sadly some give the impression, and more than the impression, that if you are not wholly committed to the Westminster Confession of Faith, you are deeply suspect. And you know, and I, and I think, Pastor Hamilton, I think you're right. I think there's there's an uh, sometimes I think there's an underlying attitude that kind of sits beneath the surface, right? And and I, yeah. Well, I I, I suppose for me, I, I if I'm honest, I I get that from the scriptures, but it powerfully impacted me as a young man reading John Calvin who I think mm. must be one of the most Catholic-spirited uh, Christians who has ever lived. That would surprise many people. But you only need to read Calvin's letters and um, his expositions and the Institutes to be confronted by a Christianity, yes, that's precise because God is precise, but that's generous um, and that reaches out beyond its own constituency to others. And Calvin, more than anyone, um, has been for me a model of Catholic Christianity. And I think in, in that chapter, you even go on to talk about what Calvin discusses, even in that subject. But it's interesting. Go ahead. Carry on. But it, it's interesting to me, um, right after chapter four, where you you talk about this Catholicity of faith, and 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 as if a person's reading with any integrity and and trying to under, understand what's going on here, right, right after that chapter comes this discussion on faith and judging others. Now, I, I don't know if if that was intentional that you put this chapter right behind this other one, but it seemed to me that they went together very nicely. Yeah, there is a there is a general intentionality in the flow of the forty three chapters. Um, if I could just interject, I often ask people, why do you think there are 43 and not 44 or 42 or 55? And only one person immediately gave, gave, gave me the right answer. 
So, um, but anyway, are you asking me to answer that question? Well, I, I would, what, because you're 43 years old. No, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, the answer is very simply: I I ran out of ideas after 43 chapters. I thought, Sufiki Enter Pro Omnibus. That's that's enough for now. Thank you. Um, I might do Faith Shape Life too. I'm actually working on a, a, a kind of sequel, uh, which I might call um, The Grace-Filled Life rather than The Faith-Shaped Life. Uh, but there is an intentionality. I, 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 I tried to make the chapters discreet and yet at the same time um, developing into the the. the the chapters that follow on after it. So there's, I hope there's an internal momentum to the 43. Yeah, I, I noticed it as I was reading. I mean, I couldn't help but see that, especially when you went from chapter four to chapter five. And I guess since we're on chapter five, I wouldn't mind even discussing this just a little bit. It, it seems to me, and, and as you have rightly pointed out, this, this section in Matthew 7 um, is often misunderstood it's often confused as to what what is Jesus saying here about the specks and the log and judging others and all this all this business and um, so maybe I maybe if you wouldn't mind just giving us a brief uh, not necessarily about the chapter itself but of course that's going to happen um, but how do you see Matthew 7 and in, in relationship to how we interact with our brothers and sisters well I see Matthew 7 those opening verses within the context of the sermon as a whole. Mm. The Lord is speaking about, and I think Sinclair Ferguson's little book on the Sermon on the Mount has this title, it's all about kingdom life in a fallen world. And Jesus is instructing his disciples on the lifestyle of the kingdom, on the style of life that's pleasing to the Heavenly Father. In a sense, he's placing the template of his own life in Matthew 5 through 7 over that of his disciples' lives. And he's clearly not saying that his children, his disciples, are not to pass <clears throat> judgments because he says, don't cast perils before swine. Mm. But he's speaking about the internal attitude of the heart. He's speaking about the way we go about things. In, in Ephesians 4, Paul says, and the English translations are not wonderful, speaking the truth in love. It's actually a, um, a present part as well. It's being true in love. And to me, the Lord Jesus is warning his disciples against the dread disease of Phariseeism, which betrays itself in an unholy censoriousness, a holier-than-thou attitude. And we all need correcting. It's, it's, it's part of family life that we receive correction and give correction. But the spirit in which we do it is absolutely paramount because the spirit in which the Lord himself corrects us is always in the spirit of grace. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And when people know that you love them, I'm thinking this very moment of an incident when I was a young student. I grilled a speaker at an intervarsity conference because he wasn't quite as reformed as I wanted him to be. And I probably was right. 
and my questions embarrassed him. He, he wasn't able to answer my questions and I felt I had somewhat put him in his place. And an older Christian friend spoke to me afterwards and came up to me and said, Ian, the way you behave was a disgrace and a dishonor mm. to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I wanted to defend myself. I, I wanted to respond in some way, but I couldn't utter one word because I knew that he was absolutely right. But the thing that more touched me was I knew this fellow had a deep love and regard for me. And I think I've never forgotten that incident. And I hope, please God, it had some effect on my life, would it had more of an effect. So throughout the sermon, Jesus is telling his disciples, never forget God looks in the heart. Never forget God looks in the heart. And no amount, no amount of right words will compensate for a heart that's not touched by the grace of God in the gospel. Mm. I love what you're saying, page 26 of this section, in pointing out the sins of others, boldness is usually needed. Now, when I read that, I said, well, that, I don't have... A, I don't have a problem in that department. The boldness part, I got it. And many of us shrink from that. But here's the part, here's the stinging part, at least for, for this guy. But no less is tenderness needed. And I say, well, that's where I'm just a disaster. Um, boldness, fine. Tenderness, not so much. <laughs> well, the tenderness of the one who was so extraordinarily patient and forbearing with his errant and slow to learn disciples. Mm -mm. I think there are two passages in the Bible that have powerfully impacted my life in this regard. One is the first servant song in Isaiah 42, and it's striking the first thing, you know, the escalation of the servant songs in 42, 49, 50, and 53. Mm -hmm. but the first thing we're told about the servant is that he will not break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering flax. He will be tender. He will carry the lambs gently in his arms, chapter 40. And it's interesting that the only time Jesus ever drew self-conscious attention to his character and temperament is in Matthew 11, when he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. That's the only time he ever self-consciously speaks of his own character. And that should weigh very heavily. Um, I wish often throughout my ministry I had more boldness. I have often lacked courage to my shame. And at times, well, Ian, but you've been gentle. And I think sometimes I have excused my lack of boldness with the thought of gentleness. And that's equally wrong because the two go together. And when people know that we have a heart care for them, they can often bear strong words. Yeah, well, I'm often reminded of that verse, uh, faithful are the wounds of a friend. But it's always, I guess, easy in this subject to, to think about well, I was faithful and I wounded, but then to forget that, but it comes from a friend, and a friend is somebody who's proven to be a loving, 
friend mm-hmm. before the wound ever comes. And um, I guess it's just easy to run to that verse and sort of justify the fact that you just not you know annihilated somebody, um, but you weren't that you weren't kind, you weren't gentle in dealing with it. Um, it's just very convicting chapter in the sermon, and it's a, you know, as far as I'm concerned anyway, it was a very thought-provoking chapter in the book as well. I do want to fast forward to a subject that I think is, um, well, in our modern world, I think is not, uh, it just doesn't get a lot of, a lot of discussion. Um, it ought to, but there's a subject that it probably should consume more of our discussions as Christians, uh, but it probably doesn't consume our discussions as it should. It was in chapter 20 where the title of the section is Faith at Work. And um, I mean, I'll confess to you, when I saw the title, I thought, okay, um, you know, what, what is he, where is he going at with this? But you're, you're talking about the idea of prayer. And um, so I'm going to ask you, I guess, as a pastor and someone who's been around a little bit, um, how do you feel the church is doing in this area of prayer? Well, it's very easy to say very badly. Um, mm-hmm. I don't really know. I can only speak for myself. And in prayer, I do very badly. Um, I don't think there is a day I can honestly say before God that I don't feel convicted at my lack of prayerfulness, at my lack of time spent uh, seeking God. I preached last Sunday morning, I finished a series on 1 Corinthians and felt quite burdened to preach on Matthew 7, 7 through 11. Um, Jesus teaching, ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find, knock and the door will be opened unto you. Now in the context, I think he is saying to his disciples, you are being called to live kingdom life in a fallen world, but unless you call upon the Lord, unless you ask him, seek from him and knock on his door, you will never begin to begin to live kingdom life in a fallen world. But the general principle holds that the church is very good at activity. I remember I must have been 19 years of age, a very young Christian. I had no Christian background whatsoever, not in my family, not in my friend, and no anyone that was church before I was converted. And the minister of the church that I started attending in Glasgow as a young student preached one preached so so well and so faithfully. But he said one thing one night that I wrote on the margin of my Bible. Prayer is evangelism shorn of all its carnal attraction. And that really spoke deeply to me and One of the sadnesses in my life is the lack of people who commit themselves to the church gatherings for prayer. The early church was steeped in prayer. One of the marks of the early church was they devoted themselves, and it's a very strong Greek verb, they devoted themselves to the prayers, Acts 2.42. And when you first encounter the church in Acts one the New Covenant Church, it's a prayer. Uh, chapter 4, what do they do when Peter is released from prison? They, they, they pray, Sovereign Lord, they're, they're corporately engaged in calling upon the Lord. 
And at least I can speak for myself and say that too easily and too often I've neglected to commit the time and the energy to seeking God, not because he's reluctant to give or slow to answer, but that he might see from me and from the congregations I serve that our Calvinism is not simply empty words, but that, I think as Benjamin Warfield once said it, um, Calvinism is Christianity on its knees. And that's not something that the church today easily and gladly embraces. Yeah, the chapter, I don't know if it, if it was intentional or, I'm not really sure, but um, seemed to be, as I was reading, it seemed to be talking a lot about our private prayer lives. Uh, certainly, if you're not praying privately, it's not likely you're going to attend the corporate gatherings of the church in prayer either. Um, but I did appreciate the section where you, you, you really went through three the three main reasons why we struggle in prayer. And, and I guess I appreciated that because, as I've often said to my friends, that you know there, there's at least one person in the universe that doesn't want you to pray. Mm-hmm. And, and you touched on that in the second reason. But in the first one, you talked about how we give in to, uh, give in to our often weary and care-distracted minds. And, you know, and I, think, I think when I'm reading that, I'm thinking, well, that's the time that we should pray the most when we have all these cares that are weighing us down. And why is it, you know, put your pastor's hat on for a second, why is it that you find... Uh, that's just not the case. Uh, we're weighed down with the burdens of this life, and instead of throwing them on Christ, be, as God told us to do, casting our cares upon Him, why is it we just don't pray? We we try to solve it on our own. Well, if I knew the answer to that, <laughs> I would, <laughs> you could write another book. I would write a book and be a millionaire. Um, I was very struck many years ago reading some words in the first chapter, I think, the concluding paragraph of the first chapter of a book by Herman Bavink entitled Our Reasonable Faith. And if you can find anything by Bavink, buy it and read it. But he says in that closing paragraph, um, man is an enigma. And I think the Christian man, the Christian woman, we're spiritual enigmas. Um, Shakespeare said, what a piece of work is man. And I think we constantly amaze ourselves by the contradictions. Um, Yes, the cares, the the burdens, the disappointment should drive us to prayer. But so often they drive us into ourselves and not out to the Lord. And that's where the devil comes, because one of the great stratagems of the devil is to turn us into ourselves. Martin Luther describes sin as incurvatus in se, that which turns us in upon ourselves. And the gospel is always saying, um, all your hope lies outside of yourself, extra nos, outside of ourselves, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Cast your burdens upon the Lord and he will sustain you. 
I just think that we are enigmas. Um, we're mm. we're puzzles. We the good that we would we do not, the evil that we would not that we do. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Mm. So that's probably the best <laughs> that I can offer, poor though it be. Yeah, and 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 you go on and you you touch on the the the. The ever-present reality—that's my word, not your word—but ever-present reality of that prayer opposer, um, who just—you know—I I confess there are times when I get up in the morning. I I I tend to do my private worship very early in the mornings, um, and I don't struggle as much with reading good books and reading God's word. But prayer—it's like it's like a a whole different kind of a battleground that picking up the scriptures and reading it, it just isn't um that's a battleground itself but it just seems at least for me seems to be a lot simpler to en- engage in but engaging in the battle of prayer just seems to be such a struggle and and i guess i just came to the realization one day that that's because it is a battle and we're wrestling against not against flesh and blood but against these spiritual forces of darkness mm-hmm. that um as you say in the book um, the this ever present prayer opposer. Uh, you know, I know this is going to be a really academic, simple question, I guess, but there may be some out there listening to this program that struggle in the same sense with prayer, and and maybe as a you know as a pastor, but you know obviously as the author of the book, why is it Satan doesn't want us to pray? Well. I think there are different answers to that. Perhaps the most basic is that it has pleased the Sovereign Lord in some profound way to tie his sovereign purposes to the prayers of his people. Uh, Mm. Martin Luther once wrote that God does nothing but in answer to prayer. Now, you may think Luther was overstating the case. Perhaps he was, but he was saying something very, very profound that God is pleased to respond according to his sovereign eternal will and purpose to to the cries and the prayers and the, the yearnings of his children. And Satan knows, I, I can't think who said this, it's, it's a little trite, but it's true, um, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. Because he knows that if we pray, the power of the risen Christ becomes in some sense available. Mm. Which is why Mm -hmm. you have this constant, you know, Paul says, pray for me, pray for me, pray for me. Um, He's aware that he stands in need of God's people standing uh, before God interceding for him. And... I just think that the what what James says in chapter 4 you do not have because you do not ask is so true at so many levels in our lives we have a father who is ever ready and eager to give far more eager to give than we are to ask and yet we are slow to ask and that's why Jesus um, constantly encourages his disciples. It's interesting that in Matthew 
uh, 6 and 7. I think 14 times he tells his disciples that God is their father and climaxes it by saying, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things? And Luke says the Holy Spirit, chapter 11, to those who ask him. In some profound way, God has tied the decrees of his eternal purposes to the prayers of his people. And he delights for us to come and to confess our absolute dependence on him, our confidence and conviction that he is gracious and good. And perhaps above all, and this I think is what's often missed, the first thing about prayer is not that we ask for anything, Mm. that we tell the Lord we love him. Thomas Goodwin, um, English Puritan, says in one of his volumes, volume seven somewhere, I think, he, he speaks as it were, as if God is speaking, and he says, you, you come to me when you have business, but when will you come just to see me? And that's one of the big things that John Owen in his great work, Communion with God, volume two of his writings, uh, writes about, that... God wants us to have communion with him, to draw near to him. Yes, we come to ask, we come to plead, but we come first to say, Lord, we love you because you first loved us. We treasure you above all treasures. We would choose you before all other lovers and all other beloveds. Um, We delight in you. We marvel at you. And I think we need to learn to cultivate, I need to learn to cultivate that profound intimacy of communion, children with Father. Your words just reminded me of a a church that we're both well acquainted with, Um, one I was a member of in Virginia, and um, I remember the, um, the first time I was in a corporate prayer meeting at this at, at, at this church and um that's what they did they they went the prayer meeting began with a devotional of course and then uh, everyone in the room would pray and it was prayers of thanksgiving and praise to god for who he is and what he's done and then they would go after all that was done then they would go back around the room and and do prayers of petition but it struck me. I thought, you know, we're always quick to run to God to ask for things, and that's not bad and it's not wrong. It's just, uh, as you said, it, but how are we equally as eager to just commune with God and, and, and focus on who he is and thank him for what he's done and forget not all of his benefits and all of these things that we read from the Psalms. And mm-hmm. um, It's just an encouragement to me to, to read that in the book and to hear you say it again and then be reminded of of such an important truth. Um, well, I speak for as, myself. Well, yes. Uh, you know, I was, as a father, and you're a father, I'm a father, and I, I was thinking, you know, if my kids always came to me just to ask me for ask me for things, ask me for things, ask me for things, but they really didn't want to engage me and, and talk to me about my life a little bit or how things are going with me or that kind of thing, it, it, it just, it's different when your children express an interest in you and their relationship just becomes more enhanced, I think maybe I'm nuts, but, um, absolutely. 
and, and so I think there's a real good correlation there, just even on an earthly plane, um, with these types of things. We're running short on time. I just I just want to touch on maybe one more section that um, was um, very um, challenging to me um, as I read it. Um, <clears throat> you're dealing with Philippians 2:20. It's chapter 39 um, in the book, and, and and I'm preaching through Philippians, so whenever I see Philippians mentioned, I'm immediately drawn to it. Um, but um, you talk about the importance that faith in Christ and, and, and our walk with Christ, the, it should drive us to look outside of ourselves to the interests and the needs of other people. It, and it's so easy, isn't it, is it not, to become so inward focused on things that we forget that there's other people <laughs> around us every single day. Well, it, when the Lord Jesus Christ was instructing his disciples in the upper room, he said, by this will all men know you are my disciples, that you love one another. And love means seeking the good of others. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the prototype of the Christian man. He is the template, and he is the one mm. who expended himself for the good of others. And the gospel turns us inside out in different ways. It turns us, first of all, outwards to the Lord, but it turns us outwards to other people. And one of the things I love, one of the my favorite verses in the whole Bible is in Acts chapter 10, where Cornelius is being evangelized by by uh, Peter. And uh, Peter's explaining Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, you've heard of Jesus of Nazareth, how he went about doing good. It's a wonderful mm. statement that the life of the Savior was a life that went about doing good, seeking the good of others, um, wiping tears from eyes and drawing near to the weary and the broken and the downcast and the rejects and that's what the gospel calls us to, and Paul is thankful that there is no one like Timothy, which is quite a staggering statement. I've got no one like him who seeks not their own, but the good of others. So we should seek to emulate that. Yeah, it's, um, as I was reading the chapter, I, I, I well, I'll admit to you that I didn't do this. <laughs> But your counsel on page 139, why not stop now and write a letter of encouragement, put on your coat, make a surprise visit, send flowers, pray, pick up the phone or whatever and make someone's day. I, I was it's sitting in my chair in my office at the seminary and I read that and I was like, does he really, I'm not, does he really want me to get up? I'm comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got more to read. <laughs> but, you know, but, but in God's providence, I was able to later you know, in remembering and thinking about this chapter, do something similar to that. And, you know, and, and, and as I did that, I realized, you know, it, it doesn't take a lot of effort. There's not, you know, you don't got to plan it out for weeks in advance. Yeah, uh, I think learning to be instinctively kind, as the Lord mm -hmm. Jesus Christ was kind, is the life that we're called to. And, you know, I... 
I suppose it's easy with the technology we have today to zip off an email to someone. But, you know, there's still nothing quite like getting a handwritten card and note and letter from someone. There's just hey, you some- mentioned that twice in the book. Pardon? Twice. Oh. You said that twice in the book. Oh, about there you go. Write a letter and write it, handwrite it. Oh, Don't yeah. email. I just <laughs> love I just love getting, um, not that I get very often, but I love getting uh, a little card. Two weeks ago, I got uh, a letter from an older lady. You could tell by the, the handwriting. And she had bought a copy of the book and she wanted to thank me. And... Um, I just thought, you know, that older lady has taken the time and the effort and the energy to sit down and painstakingly write a full page uh, just to encourage me. And I thought, Lord, thank you. That was Mm. timely. That was very timely. Emails are good, but there's nothing like a little John Hancock as you Americans might say. Yeah, yeah I re- you, you reminded me of my dear mother who, um, you know, <clears throat> who I, <clears throat> without getting too weepy, um, who I attribute to the fact that I'm in the kingdom of God outside of God's good pleasure and sovereign grace. But, I mean, if there was no truth, if there's any single truth that <clears throat> you can pray somebody into the kingdom, my mother in- embodied that as a child mm-hmm. growing up. And, um she sat down and, and, you know, she could have emailed me this. She could have, you know, <clears throat> whatever. But she sat down and wrote in her own writing, in her own in her own penmanship, a letter to me on a Father's Day a few years back, which I cherish to this day. And I have kept um, that letter tucked aside in a special place. Um, you're right. There's something about it that was just the words would have been the same in the email. Yes. And it would have still been my mom. Yes. But. There was something about that handwritten thing. Now, if you enjoy Pastor Hamilton, if you enjoy those letters so much, we can always post your address on the on the podcast website, and you can get all kinds of letters. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm I'm kidding, of course. <laughs> thank you, thank you very much. <laughs> well, look, we're almost we're pretty much out of time, and I know you're busy, and I don't want to keep you much longer. I guess you know if if you were able to just this is going to sound like self-promotion and I know you well enough to know that that's not something you'd like to do. Um, but why should people read this book? There's so many things to read out there. Why this book? Well, hopefully it will helpfully point you to Jesus Christ in whom Mm -hmm. are hid all the treasures of God. And those treasures are ours because of our union with Christ. And you can get it from the from the trust from the banner of truth. Yeah, you can um, get it as an ebook. Um, we're now on um, ebooks, and um, that might be a, a quick way to get it. It doesn't cost much, and um, hopefully, it will do some good. I'm very thankful that, in some small way, it seems to have. Mm. Since you mentioned that, what what have you received uh, feedback other than from me? Yes, um, uh, I've, re- I've received very generous feedbacks. So there's been a few reviews in different Christian periodicals. They've all thus far been um, 
encouraging uh, with one or two little bar. One one fellow wrote a very generous uh, review, but was disappointed I didn't use the King James Version. Um, although I, I try and use the accurate Hebrew and Greek wherever I can. <laughs> um, <laughs> the Lord's been kind to me, and um, I, I'm just thankful that perhaps it can do a little good. Yep. yep, and as I, as I said to you, and I'll say again, I've, I thoroughly enjoyed the book, and I thank you for writing it, and for, and and I know you personally, so I know the heart that went into it as well, and perhaps that helps. Um, I I don't doubt that, um, but I appreciated it, the challenge in in so many different levels, maybe in forty three different levels, um, but um, it, it I think the Lord's using it, and has used it. Um, even in my discussion with some of the students around the seminary who have read it and um, who have been very blessed to have done so. So I do thank you for re- for writing it. And I would encourage the listeners, you know, it's as, as Pastor Hamilton just said, it's not that much. You can get it as an e-book. I know everybody's into that nowadays. I still like to have the book in my hand. I guess call me old-fashioned. Um, there's something about having a book in my hand as I'm reading. I don't know. Maybe I'm weird. But, uh, well, I'm weird anyway. But, um but you can get it in different formats, and so I would encourage you to do so. Um, use it in family worship. Um, it, it is it is designed in such a way that you can do that and not feel, uh, as a busy father who's trying to lead his family in the things of the Lord, you won't feel overwhelmed um, with trying to read, you know, 27-page chapters. Um, and and it, there's some good thought-provoking statements and, and questions asked and in, in, embedded inside of these these small little... Um, sections that are very challenging, very helpful um, uh, to think and meditate upon. And so uh, use it. There's a, there's a number of ways to do it. I already mentioned um, my wife and I are uh, going to do it together, uh, go through it together. And um, so take advantage of these these great opportunities that God has blessed this church with. Um, so many books being written these days. And um, here's one that, that I think you can be very confident that it will be helpful for your own spiritual walk well pastor hamilton it's great to always great to talk with you um thank you i'm sorry the last time you weren't in town we weren't able to play golf together but maybe one of these days again sometime soon uh, we'll we'll get back out there and do something like that but uh anyway i appreciate you being on and taking the time uh, to discuss this thanks for having me thank you if you hold on just just one second don't hang up on me or else my recording will just poof go into thin air i just want to let the listeners know i don't know what's coming up on the program (laughs) i'm the guest of the show the the host of the show i probably should know i don't know um but you've heard that before if you want to know what is going on simply go to the website confessingourhope.com and there you can get all the information that i don't talk about um or don't know about um That's the best place to get the information. So until next time, I do thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless.